I'd like to um, to begin this um, this exploration this evening with um, with an exercise, which um, we're going to need to use our imaginations for because it'll be quite disruptive to actually try and do it. <laughs> so we're going to imagine ourselves doing it, and you know, bear with me. Hopefully, this will work. So we'll begin the imaginary exercise by uh, just imagining that we all stood up and kind of made a circular shape in, in this room so that we could all, um, could all more or less see each other. And then I will ask you to just randomly choose two people in, in that circular shape. And, you know, you don't need to do anything with that except know that you've picked those two. Then the next step is that we start moving around the hall. We start moving around the space. And you have a very, very simple task. You need to make sure that you're always at an equal distance from the two people that you've picked. getting a sense why it would be a bit difficult to actually do this <laughs> in here. So what, using your imagination, what do you think would happen? So you know there's about, I don't know, 65 of us probably in here. And we've each picked two other people and we're each, we're all moving around the space and we're all keeping in mind our two people staying at an equal distance from both of them, what would happen? You're allowed to say, <laughs> if anyone wants to, to, to tell me. What would, chaos, okay. So Emma thinks it might, without speaking, yeah. So you think eventually we would, we would get to a, a, a place of stillness? Yeah, with everyone at, a, at, a, at the same distance. Okay, yeah, good. Any, any other? Sorry, we'd end up clustered up in the middle. Okay. Has anyone ever done this exercise? Okay, so you're speaking from experience. Chaos, okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> good, yeah. So what, what happens is, um, I, I've experienced it a few times, and, and I would say, yeah, a bit like Andrew's chaos, but a very beautiful kind of chaos. Um, it's a bit like a dance. So, you know, everyone's moving, and every once in a while, it slows down, and it feels like, oh, we're about to stop, just like Emma thought we would. But then, someone's not quite at the right distance, so they have to move a little bit, and then what happens? If someone moves a little bit, someone else has to move a little bit. And then it all starts again. You know, it's like, um, it's quite psychedelic, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, so great. You see, we did it, even without doing it. <laughs> we got the feeling, we got the sense. And um, this exercise comes from, a, from something called systems theory. Um, and it actually, when you actually do it, and hopefully a little bit also with imagining it, you get a sense of something um, very, very fundamental to, to life. 
Any, any sense of what that is? A knock-on effect? Anything else? Interconnected, interconnectedness? Dark energy, okay. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, everything, yeah. And patterns, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry? There's no end, yeah. This constant interconnected flux and movement which creates beautiful patterns but is continuously moving, yeah, continues to move, continues to flow. Because everything, even when we do it in a very, very simple way like that, you know, just three points that need to stay in touch, but everyone's got three points, <laughs> yeah. So we get this incredible flux movement. Codependence, interdependence, interconnectedness. There's many, many um, words, beautiful words for this. So that was kind of one way of touching on this. And um, behind me is another one. I don't know if anyone noticed, we have an addition in the hall. Did anyone notice the, the sticks? Yeah, good. So we've got three sticks. <laughs> First time I've done this with such long sticks. <laughs> Use quite small ones, but you know the size of the hall determines the length of the sticks. Um, and you might not be able to see this all the way from the back, but they're just leaning on each other. Yeah, there's nothing um, tying them together. There's nothing sticking them together. They're not propped into anything. So they're they're three sticks leaning on each other and standing together. You know, we don't need a lot of imagination to know what would happen if we moved one of the sticks. Yeah. So the, the teacher, Elizabeth Matisse Namgyal, she's an American teacher in, in um, one of the Tibetan traditions. Um, she, she uses this um, quite a lot in her teachings. And she says, um, everything leans. It's not just the sticks that are leaning on each other. Yeah, everything, everything leans. There's no thing in this world which is freestanding, which does not lean on something and is not being leaned on. And we can take a, a moment to reflect on that and to feel, you know, do we, do we actually know anything that is freestanding? And how does it make us feel that everything leans? So nothing is freestanding, nothing exists from its own side, yeah, separately. And that includes everything. Tradition, this is called emptiness. It includes everything, you know, our thoughts, our views, our sensations, objects of all shape and form. Nothing is freestanding. 
Yeah, everything leans. It's all empty. And so this morning we were um, exploring in the practice a little bit of this. Yeah, we were exploring how um, dukkha, suffering, clinging, and contraction are codependent. Yeah, they lean on each other. And we're looking at that. And some people have spoken about in, in the groups this afternoon that they, what became apparent working with this, looking at this, exploring this, that the, the sense of self is also leaning in there. It's also part of that group of sticks that are leaning on each other. And so, you know, even if that was not something that you directly saw, you can kind of contemplate your experience today and just think, you know, moments when I was um, welcoming contraction, moments when I was able to, to create space or to relax the contraction. What, what was going on with the sense of self when that was going on? Moments when um, I was caught up in a lot of dukkha, a lot of suffering. What was going on with the sense of self, with the sense of identity, with the sense of I in that moment? We can reflect on that and see how it's connected. When there's more clinging, there's more self. Yeah. They arise together, connected. When there's a little bit less clinging, there's less self. There's less dukkha. Yeah, less suffering. Less contraction. So they arise together. They coexist. They mutually support each other. They're a pile of sticks, <laughs> just like just like this one. And this is, this is really at the heart of the teachings. Yeah, this is really at the heart of the teachings. And it's also at the heart of, of freedom, of awakening. Seeing this, exploring this, playing with this. You know, and, and, and with a lot of care and a lot of gentleness and a lot of playfulness like we've been doing over the days. You know, that also. And we're not trying to get rid of anything. We're interested in understanding. And we're interested in the lessening of suffering for ourselves and others. So we're interested to see how all of this plays together and where are our access points to it. Where our access points to it.
So yesterday, in, um, in his talk, Jake was speaking about the, um, you know, the sense of, you know, all the conditions that are coming together to support us in our practice here, you know, to support the retreat. And he said at some point, um, he said, you know, and, and you know, we, we feel, you know, everything, the teachings are here and we're all practicing and, you know, but what would happen if, if suddenly there was no water? You know, he said, we'd have to send you home. So we need that condition as well. You know, it's all part of what something like a retreat that seems to have, you know, such an essence it leans on so many things. It's dependent on so many things. It's conditioned by so many things. And funnily enough, you know, when he said that, um, you know, I was sitting over there, <laughs> and I thought, huh. I happen to uh, to to teach regularly in a in a retreat center in the Indian Himalayas, <laughs> where <laughs> the water does run out. Or at least stop com- stop, stops coming out of the taps on quite a regular basis. <laughs> and in those conditions, we don't send people home. <laughs> you know, it, it kind of, you know, we, we first of all find out, send someone off to find out why the water stopped, which means they have to follow the pipe. There's only one pipe. <laughs> they have to follow and find out what happens. And there's lots of different reasons. I'm just, you know, I have to do a bit of humor. So sometimes, um, it's, it's, you know, whoever's got a pipe coming off the main pipe before um, Dharmalaya, this center, um, they, they, they haven't turned off their taps and their tanks are overflowing. But there's not enough water coming down <laughs> to us because we're at the end of the line. Sometimes that's the reason. Sometimes, um, you know, one of the goat herds in the area, you know, doesn't find water for his goat, so they just break the pipe somewhere so that the goats have a drink. And, you know, they kind of, eh, everyone else will be okay. And that's why there's no water. Um, sometimes uh, there just hasn't been enough rain. And so the main water supply for the whole kind of little area um, gets depleted. And so that's why there's no water coming out of the pipes. And um, in any of those situations, you know, well, especially the more severe ones, if, if we can't, if the pipe can't be fixed and the water supply can't be, um, kind of back on its feet quickly enough, then, you know, we walk down to the stream with buckets, <laughs> including the retreatants, and we carry out water. And I was kind of having a good laugh yesterday thinking of the situation if a guy house, that happened, and, and, you know, we actually all walk down with buckets to the, the stream, which isn't far at all, and brought water back. And, you know, what would health and safety have to say about that? <laughs> An absolute no-go. And so, you know, everything is conditioned. And you can take you think the same thing. It's the same teachings. It's the same form. Uh, it's even the same teacher in this case. Um, but we're dependent. You know, when we're in the Himalayas, we can go with the retreatants and get water from the buckets and, you know, boil it for drinking and whatever. And health and safety is, you know, a completely different realm. It doesn't exist. Uh, when we're here, it, it's a very, very clear and present condition. Um, and we would probably have to send you home, even if there was water in the stream. <laughs> Nothing we could do about it. So, I'm not only, I'm, you know, partly telling you the story because it's funny, but it's not the only reason. Um, it, it, 
it shows us something about conditions and about what happens when we really open to understand conditions. We understand then both the limits that we have with conditions and also um, where they're not limited, you know, when they're not limited. And, and this is really, really important, really, really helpful and really interesting. So the more we become aware of the conditioned nature of things, the more we become aware of interconnectedness, um, yeah, we, we have to face limitations, but we also become aware of possibilities. We also become aware of possibilities. And the more we can inhabit also these places of, of not knowing or of um, great difficulty, yeah, of great difficulty, of great pain. And this place where, you know, everything leans, this place of interconnectedness becomes a real resource for us, a real support, a real support. Sometimes I get this, um, this image, um, particularly, you know, times when, um, when things are difficult, either, you know, personally or... Uh, I come into contact with, with something very painful in the world. And I have this, this image which really um, I find really, really helpful. I just kind of rest back into that network of interconnectedness. I just rest back. And my, the image I have in my head is like this big web, this really, really great big web that I can just kind of plug into. And then there's such a big space to hold that difficulty, to hold that pain, whether it's personal, it's mine, or it's ours. Yeah, it's a great, for me, a great support. And, you know, yeah, I really want to get this image across. It, it, it feels sometimes as if, like, really, like I'm plugging into something, you know, like really plugging in. I can feel the life energy that is not mine but is ours kind of flowing through the system and that life energy you know the life sustains can hold can contain both the joy and the sorrow that that this life consists of it can do both and from that place of of resting back into that web resting back into that network um, a lot of possibilities come for for action and for response a lot of possibilities come for action and for response and um, they're really varied and really rich I want to give an example of this um, it's a very um, very very dear friend of mine um, who's a Palestinian man, um, his, his wife is, um, is very, very gravely ill with, with stage four cancer. And um, she's, um, she's right, right now, um, last couple of months receiving, sorry, the last month, she's in a hospital in Israel uh, for treatment. And um, their five children are in the village in Palestine. Um, so he's with her most of the time. And because of the particular um, 
injustice and difficulty of that situation, of course, there's no free movement. And their own family, so his brothers, um, they can't drive the children, they can't bring them into Israel to visit their mom. Yeah. So there's a whole uh, network of his um, Israeli and Palestinian Israeli friends who are doing that instead. And so um, they all happen to be, they happen to be practitioners, happen to be Dharma practitioners. And so they're, you know, driving my friend Isa back and forth to, to be with his wife, and they're driving the children uh, back and forth to, to visit their mom. And, but they're not only doing that. This is kind of the, the thing I wanted to touch on. So in that kind of situation, you know, when there's that kind of um, incredible distress in a family that, you know, some of us may know firsthand, others can easily imagine. And then there's the added, added distress of the particular life circumstances of being born and raised Palestinian under, under military occupation that add the difficulty. And so these, these friends, this network of support, they're supporting them in, in the sorrow. So they're there in the hospital and they're driving. But they're also making sure, together with the parents, that when the children come, they always also have some joy. <laughs> so they go to the zoo or they go to the beach, or they go to a swimming pool, or they make a picnic in the hospital corridor <laughs> with their mum. And usually the mother can, sometimes the mother can come with them also outside. But, you know, that sense of being together in a situation of togetherness, of interconnectedness, that frees up so we can support as much as possible. And none of us can do what we would wish to do most, which is to heal, to take away the disease, or to take away the occupation. That's not in our hands. But there's a lot that is. There's a lot that is, and not losing contact with that. And I'm, I'm very fortunate, I'm on the WhatsApp group, so I get the photos of the kids and the happiness, you know, on their faces, you know, when they're on the beach, when they're, you know, and, and, and just thinking in the midst of that, in the midst of that, to give, to give joy, to feel joy. So sometimes, there's things we can do. And sometimes there's not much we can do except stay steady and open in the midst of, of difficulty. And we know this from our own practice. Yeah. You know, through the retreat, through the days here, we've been working with different approaches, different ways of opening to experience, of being to experience, being with experience. And sometimes there's a shifting, and sometimes we just have to do our best to stay with that which is there. 
yeah, in our practice, in our lives, we know these, we know these experiences. So sometimes there's not much else we can do except stay steady and open in the face of the complexity of life, the complexity of life. And that's, you know, say that's something that's, sometimes that's all we can do. That's, that's, <laughs> that's immense, you know, that's, that's so huge. Staying steady and open. with complexity. You know, our own in our inner life of like, okay, there's this and this and this and this and I don't even know where to to start. I don't even know which tension or contraction to start relaxing here. <laughs> what was she saying this morning? You know, and I just, can I just hold that space? Can I just hold that space? Stay as open and present as I can. And I want to give another example of this. This is from another friend of mine. Um, This is someone who comes um, every year to a a retreat for activists that I teach um, in Israel. And, um, you know, decades, decades of activism in in different fields. And she, um, she lives in a neighborhood in South Tel Aviv. And it seems to be the quite common division in many places in the world between north and south. The south, south Tel Aviv, is poor and um, underprivileged. And so it's where the majority of asylum seekers and refugees crossing illegally from Africa into Israel, it's where the majority of them end up in these, these neighborhoods of, of South Tel Aviv. And um, this friend of mine, she, she finds herself in a very interesting situation. So, as I said, she's been an activist um, most of her life, um, social, acting for social change, for equal rights. Um, you know, she's her self-views of being liberal and open-minded and fighting for the underdogs. And then it's her neighborhood that is now overpopulated um, to a great, great degree. And it's her partner, her partner, her life partner, who's become the leader of the neighborhood movement of the original residents of the neighborhood to solve the refugee problem. But solve the refugee problem in the way that you know many of us have heard this term before. Not solve the refugee problem, solve the refugee, our refugee problem. So how that's affecting our neighborhood. And when, when she, um, she speaks about this, you feel the power of her practice. Because she has become really, really clear that she will not take sides. <laughs> Yeah, she's on everybody's side. So she will not take sides. And there's so much clarity in seeing the issues. You know, the issues of overpopulation, of not enough infrastructure, of this being a poor neighborhood, therefore the city council doesn't address the issues 
because none of the people there, the old residents, the new residents, none of them have power. None of them have money, none of them have a voice. So seeing that and living in the midst of it, you know, living in the midst of it, and staying steady and open, staying steady and open. And I'm just going to quote her, you know, she says, I just hold the space, I don't take sides, and I do whatever small act of kindness I can do without picking and choosing, you know, who deserves that kindness and who doesn't. Yeah, so that's, that's the power of this possibility. Yeah, and it's the same process that we've been doing with ourselves, yeah? We see the parts that we like in ourselves and we don't like the parts that we agree with and we don't agree with, the wholesome and the unwholesome. And can we stay welcoming and open and kind without picking and choosing, without saying you deserve and you don't? It's a real, it's a big, big ask. But it's also something that we're capable of. It's also something that we're capable of. And it's what Dharma teachings both encourage us to do and support us, support us to do. To see the complexity and be interested in it, to not look for quick fixes and quick solutions, but to be interested to understand and to stay open. And then when we speak, when we act, to do that with openness and with humility. Yeah, with openness and with humility. And here's my favorite part. It's coming. So when we look at complexity and we stay open, we stay steady, we look at complexity, when we look at interconnectedness and we look at emptiness, we see that our own actions, our own intentions, play a part. So we too are part of that network. We're part of that movement. Remember that game at the beginning? If we move a tiny bit, everything moves. Yeah. So every action, every word is part of this network. You know, it doesn't mean that we need to walk around kind of being completely tense and, you know, very paranoid, okay, I've got to say the right thing now because the, word, the world depends on it. <laughs> if I get this wrong, you know. But instead, just feeling that possibility, that potential, 
and that beauty, you know, that we're part of this, we're part of it all. It's a wonderful, a wonderful strength, a wonderful power that we have. And Jake was, was speaking, I think it was yesterday, about, you know, seeing the practice as a gift. Yeah, seeing the practice as a gift. That what we're doing here is a gift to ourselves and to, to all of life. And if we can extend that also. So many moments in our lives, they can be gifts. Every time we listen to someone, you know, even every time we look at someone, when we really look at someone, when we smile, when we reach out in some way, these are all gifts and they're all have an impact that's way beyond what we can see and know, way beyond. One of the beautiful things about this is as we start to look at life in this way, as we look at the conditionality, we look at the interconnectedness, we sometimes can also see the impact, which brings a lot of joy, which brings a lot of joy. So I spoke the, the other night about the leprosy community that I spend time in in central India. And um, it's, it's an incredible place. It was founded in, in um, very, very early 50s. And it's a place that just doesn't stop kind of growing <laughs> and giving. So whenever they see there's a need, they do something about it. And one of the things they've done over the years is um, they're in a, it's a rural area. So there was no education for um, children with visual impairments and hearing impairments. So in the 70s, they opened a school for kids with visual impairments. And in the 80s, they opened a school for kids with hearing impairments. And um, one of the things we do there is we also have the great pleasure to work with the kids um, because these are boarding schools. It's a rural area. They can't go home, poor families can't go home every day, so they, they stay, they board. And um, yeah, I've learned so much from them, they're incredible kids. And they're very, very self-sufficient because you know they have the teachers during the school hours, and then after school, they mostly look after each other. You know, there's maybe like four grown-ups to about 120 boys and then four grown-ups for 120 girls, so it's a pretty, pretty low ratio. They really look after each other. And one of the most beautiful things that happens every year when we arrive is that um, the older children who know us, they bring the little ones who've just arrived that year to meet us. And, you know, sometimes they're five years old. <laughs> or at least their body looks like they're fine, they're tiny. And they just bring them over to meet us. And the first years, usually, they would be a bit hesitant, you know. They probably haven't seen foreigners before, and they're not so clear why they need to come and hang out with these weird white-skinned 
people. Um, and so, you know, they kind of stay back for a little while, and then they see, oh, yeah, they, they're cool, they play crazy games, and they give piggyback rides, and, you know, they whirl us around, and so they, they get involved pretty quickly. Um, but then what started to happen, and what started to happen after a few years, was that they would trust us immediately, which is something that I can't explain. But it's as if the, the love and the trust with the older children just somehow passed through. And the younger kids would just feel it and immediately engage, immediately come and have a cuddle or, or whatever it was. It didn't, it didn't have to have that warming up period anymore. And like I say, I can't, I can't explain it but it gives me an incredible sense of wonder and to see these, yeah, tiny little beings just offering themselves in, in that way. So, you know, sometimes giving a piggyback ride <laughs> or you know, playing crazy games, being totally silly with children. It, it has an impact beyond that joy of that moment. It has an impact in, in the relationship that grows and in the sense of trust that grows. And so those, these moments, you know, on the cushion and in life, they really matter. They really, really matter. And they're not just kind of something we, we do. They really have an impact. So all these moments in mom in, in on the cushion and in our lives when we we really nourish these qualities, you know, the wisdom, the peace, the joy that we've been playing with over the days, the metta, generosity, you know, compassion, there's so many of these qualities, clear seeing. All these moments when we nourish that, the more we nourish that, the more it grows in us. But we, I, you, we are not freestanding. <laughs> yeah? We do not exist on our own separate from anything else. So if it grows in us, it grows in our own hearts, and our own being. It's growing in the world. It's growing in life. It's that gift again. Not just doing it for me. We're doing it for us. And it has an impact. So as the love grows within us, it grows in the world. And it grows in the world. A real love, you know, a real happiness. And it's something that we can keep offering, keep offering to ourselves, keep offering to each other. Keep offering, and it keeps growing, and it keeps coming back. Sometimes we recognize it, and sometimes we don't. But it keeps coming back to us.
So I want to I wanna close with um, another story from Gregory Boyle, from this incredible human being who's also a Jesuit priest. As I said last time, he, he's worked for decades in um, poorest barriers of L.A. Uh, with gang members, primarily. And he's buried many of them. Yeah, he's buried many of them. And this story is um, he's speaking about uh, one, of the, one of, the, of the young men who had um, come to work for them. So he runs something called Homeboy Industries, where they actually give job opportunities and training and have a school and all kinds of things. And uh, this young man, Raul, was, um, was actually on the job in their graffiti removal, one of their graffiti removal crew, crews. And he was on his own. And for no reason, no one knows why, um, he was shot and killed by some uh, gang-related violence. And so this is um, going to read from Gregory Boyle, from his words. So he says, after spending the entire afternoon with Raoul's mom and family, I wanted to get back to the office before closing time. I knew that the homies, apparently homies is the word that they use for themselves, the gang members. I didn't know this before I read the book. So I knew that the homies, it's great, isn't it? So much nicer than gang member. The homies needed to see me and I needed to see them. With 10 minutes left on the day's clock, my workers filed into my tiny office one by one to hug, to cry, and to take my emotional temperature. So they're concerned for him. Each one attentive, tender, and consumed by a self-forgetfulness that only saints really are able to pull off. Then, you know, they all go home, and I'm there alone, with the ache that doesn't leave you, the ache in the heart, and the echoey silence of the empty headquarters. Suddenly, Freddie, one of my workers, appears, standing in my doorway. He asks how I'm doing, and I sigh, motioning him to sit down. I know your heart is breaking, he says, beginning to cry. I wish I had a magic wand to pass over your pain. As an adult, I can't recall ever crying with another person more fully than at that moment. And so, the, you know, they're just letting themselves cry together. And he says, usually I, I find that I hold things back. And I've been holding this enormous outsized grief in check for so long, and suddenly I have permission to release it in the gentle urging and vast heart of Freddie. At 23 years old, Freddie's worked at Homeboy for some years now in a wide variety of sites and tasks. But his singularly spectacular temper requires frequent changes of venue. <laughs> so this is Freddie. So he moves around from place to place. But right now, in this moment, he knows how to use his deep rage 
an essential wound to hold all that I was carrying. And Freddie says, you know G, they call him G. All of us here are drowning. And you, you just reach in and you sweep us up. We carry on crying, holding our heads, rocking, unable to speak. Then Freddie, with his teeth clenched and something nearly resembling his frequent bursts of anger, points his finger at me with a holy determination. I swear to you, he says, if someone offered me a choice right now, a million dollars or a chance to swoop you up. He stops and swallows hard against this overflow of crying. I would swoop you up. If someone gave me the choice right now, a million dollars or a chance to swoop you up chance to take away your pain. I would swoop you up. And through my tears, I'm barely able to whisper, you just did. You just did. So it comes back and it grows in ourselves and in others and in the world. And that goodness is in all of us, not different than our shadows, but coming out, growing out, leaning into, made up of. Let's have a quiet moment together. So may we rest into the emptiness and the fullness of life. May we remember the gift that we share. And may our practice together continue to benefit and be for the welfare of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. <laughs>